Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. We are go. This is Pitch Tech Asia. We're on a tour of the startup ecosystem in Asia, uncovering the unsung heroes, the builders of the startup ecosystem, everybody from the early stage venture funds to the co-working space. It just so happens today we've got them all in one place. Grace Sai. Grace, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for inviting us here to Foundate. So Foundate, we are here on Anson. Mm-hmm. You have, let's say, well, five? Five in Singapore. Five locations. Mm-hmm. We're just talking off air. For those that don't know, the original story, the OG origins of Foundate, how did it all start? We're going back, way back now, mm-hmm. 2012, mm-hmm. nearly eight years ago. Mm-hmm. The Hub. Yeah. So those that remember The Hub, let's talk <laughs> about that first. Where did this all start? So. Those who remember the hub are the OGs of the startup ecosystem, <laughs> yeah, you included. And um, those who have been there, you know, in that first rate building for that we were there for three and a half years, they can never call us found it today right. still. They refuse to, you know, they right. still they still love that whole first tribe that got together. Um before that there wasn't much of a startup community in Singapore. Mm. Um no, but um, Foundate is a recent merger between Collision 8 and Found, and Found rebranded from the hub just last year, right. actually. So we just did two rounds of rebranding in a year. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's been great, but the, 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 the history of it was when I was doing my MBA in the UK and uh, spent the summer in the Bay Area. And um, at that time, the movement of co-working was just beginning in the US. You know, I don't think we were was anything yet at that time. Mm. Um, and the hub was, you know, on our market and Fifth Street in San Francisco. And uh, the moment I stepped in, I was like, wow, you know, just that infectious courage that was going on. And I was like, it was in the old San Francisco Chronicle building. It was oh, wow. old newspaper yeah. um, factory. And I was like... We need this in Asia. What's this? What was that vibe that you sent? Yeah, it was it was just uninhibited. It was courageous. It was infectious, very positive. Um, a lot of them were also using business and technology for good. You know, mm. it wasn't just a tech startup movement, but also the the whole impact tech as, as well. So um, I got in touch with the Global Network back in 2010. And then really decided to come back to Asia and not work in London or San Francisco after the MBA to start it. And mm. so we took about, I took about nine months to start it. And we opened in May 2012. On Somerset? Yeah. Yeah. And the tribe, you mentioned this word tribe. I'm fascinated by what that could mean. Who, who were these original, this band that you pulled together of people that originally inhabited the first version of the hub? Yeah, it was so cool. It was like we were 400 over members in no time. And, um, you know, even even to today, you might know Tech in Asia or Golden Gate mm. Ventures or Jungle Ventures. And they all kind of like started out of the hub, you know. They're all based there. Yeah, they, they yeah. started their office there or they grew into there. And they were there for many, many years. Um, so when we when we looked back and we measured, for example, one measurement that we tracked was the amount of funds raised by our community um, collectively for the past years, we, we, we just reached a half a billion dollar mark. Mm. 
So there was a lot of activity, you know, it wasn't necessarily reported in the media all the time. At that time, there wasn't an ecosystem, right? There was no, no. no you and no podcast. Very early days. <laughs> Very early yeah, days. Absolutely. Um, but things were already happening and we were so privileged to be, awesome. to be witnessing that. So I even remember, I, mean, I spoke to Vinnie Loria from Golden Gate mm. and he was saying, I think it was in 2011, he did FailCon, which yeah. was like the first time really anybody had done a conference about failure. Yeah, 2012. Okay, 2012. Yeah. okay, so it's 2012. So right about that time. So really you were there right at the mm. early days of Singapore. I mean, you know, I came to Singapore first in the 90s. It was mm. very different and it was very much We're clearly from a different generation, Greg. Yeah, I'm slightly older. <laughs> no. <laughs> I confess. I was a baby at the time, so a baby graduated. But that then, you know, it moved into that sort of startup ecosystem, which really started about 2012. What was it like back then for those? I mean, now we have so much government support, so many programs, there's co-working spaces, early stage funds. There's all the support you need out there mm. maybe what we're kind of missing i think in in asia southeast asia particularly is the second generation angels mm -hmm. who have exited mm -hmm. from startups and then are investing there's a lot of high net worths who aren't really angels so that mm -hmm. there's sort of that missing but support wise we're there what was it like back in 2012 you really must have been sort of out on a limb really an outlier in Singapore back then? Mm. Well, to be fair, I think there was already the makings of the first generation of entrepreneurs before 2012. You know, even the government had gone through its own pivots, its own learning. That's the good thing about the Singapore government, right? Mm. Like it it just dove right in, in, in back in 20, 2009 when the economic crisis hit. And they were like, you know, we need, to, we need to create our own jobs. We need to create our own hallmark companies and not just rely on FDI. So I think from a policy top-down level, uh, 20, 2009 was when it began in Singapore. But yeah, there was already a first generation of founders then. They have not yet all exited yet. Um, now we're actually seeing a recycling of the second generation. You're right. I think, you know, there's one millionaire in every 11 people in Singapore. You throw a rock and you might hit a millionaire, right? right? But you're right. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, funneling that capital into the startup dream, right, is, is rare. Um, we are doing things to to help lubricate that that ecosystem with old money, as mm. we would call it. The one one of the things we do is we're we're launching a family business lab, so we're targeting um the next generation leaders. You know, the second gens, the mm. third gens, the fourth gens of large, rich, Asian, crazy rich Asian families, right? The real CREs, um who want to learn how to now form their own differentiated dynasties away from their parents or their grandparents. And they want to learn about this startup mm. method. They also want to be, they're also curious about how to park some of their capital as LPs into funds or even them themselves becoming GPs of funds. So um, we're doing our part there because my, my co-founder now, the founder of Collegiate, Michelle Yong, is the fourth generation of the Warhub family. Mm. You know, they, they're a construction um, family. They built gardens by the bay. They're, they, are just, they are just finishing Jewel at Changi right now. So how do you transform a, you know, 94-year-old construction family business into doing something cool like that? Like yeah. we have four floors, going to be five floors in this building where we're at right now. This is the level 20. We also have the penthouse level. And, you know, there are, 
three levels of co-working and two levels of co-wellness is the first concept in the world too, where you know all the fitness and wellness professionals can be their own entrepreneurs by by sharing this infrastructure that we have, right? So, so we really believe that um, it's we are still scratching the beginning, mm. the, the the surface of releasing talent and capital from the wider population in Singapore. Let's talk about that because you, I mean, this journey. I mean, it started well before, but there was a pivotal moment when you were in the Bay Area and you saw mm. in the old newspaper building what it could be, right? And you saw all that. You mentioned some of the words like courage, mm. for example. Um, so, you, I mean, obviously you've picked these words carefully to describe what was going on at the time. And now you're talking about family offices, which even though they exist all over the world, it's a very Asian thing, isn't it? So I, I think looking from the outside so people can understand where we are in Southeast Asia in particularly, what family offices are all about. I mean, in especially that sort of second, third, fourth generation of entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, it sounds easy. You know, if your granddad made a lot of money out of retail, it sounds easy for you as the grandkid then to go and start another business. And, but in fact, it's actually quite hard because, you know, why are you doing the startup thing where you can get 12% in a shopping center, right? I don't want to be them. Yeah. That's all I can say. I think they have a much harder time than we we, we have the self-made ones. Yeah. <laughs> we like you and I, you know, where we can just ask for forgiveness and not permission. Right. They need, they need that permission to deviate. Mm. So yeah. how, how do you, how do you, I mean, you're, you're building a lab. How do you... You know, what was the challenge there? Is it a mindset shift more than anything? Like, you know, that allow them the space to experiment and make mistakes and do it outside of the main sort of family office yeah. brand? So I don't I don't really build businesses based on mindset shifts because that can take a generation, which is mm. 42 years. And there's no business model. Um, but, you know, behavioral psychology, right? Like if you, if you familiarize them with different ways to behave, then it will eventually lead to, dif- lead to different ways of thinking. So it's all about um, getting quick wins, um, fast mm. successes, out pilots out out of the door, showing showing quick wins to their parents, you know, um, to their grandparents, um, and then take it from there. So yeah, really sort of spreading the startup methodology um, that then will spread the mindset, right? Yeah. But we can't start with the mindset per se because that's not that's very too long. Mm, yeah. And it's too intangible. So we start with the startup methodology and make them basically um, create something from post-it to paper, from paper to mm, pilot, right? Mm. We call it. Um, so we'll see if we're launching that this year. But yeah, back back in, back in 2010, 2012, I remember that I didn't know any family offices then, you know, when I was raising that seat round. And, and so I had to like sell, I had to ask my mom to make 30 of her best fruitcakes and I, I literally sold them for 80 bucks each, you know. Right. To, <laughs> that was, that was your my seed rounds? Yeah, that was, that was, and th- no, to last two more months because I was running out of money already by seven months. Oh, it was not to months. eat the fruitcakes? No, so. I sold the okay. fruitcakes and no, I bribed with, no, no. Um, and um, in that last two months, I raised the seed round, got the first team and, right. and got the first building. But that was the, the, the extent that I had to do, you know. Now it's so different. Do you, do you think you came from a different generation of entrepreneurs in the sense that um we're seeing now i mean we do online demo days and you know we're seeing uh startups now raising seed rounds of one million two million seed rounds i mean everything's sort of shifting obviously and that seems to be normal now and now so what's shifting is 
a pre-seed round that's sort of emerging there's a lot of pre-seed funds mm -hmm. now people writing tickets of like 25 50 up mm -hmm. so but there seems to be a generation of entrepreneurs who maybe you know were grew up in having to really hustle hard and mm. sell fruitcakes, right? Because they, you know, if they raise a million now, the first thing they do is not necessarily go out and buy a domain name for a hundred grand, right? You know, they understand the value of every single dollar. Mm. Is it too easy now to raise money and therefore people inflating those seed rounds? What are you seeing in terms of the, the sort of the early stage startups going out there? Are there still people out there who, you know, going out and hustling every single dollar? Or do you think there's too much money in the market? Depends on which market. I think Singapore is quite a special case. We have the most VC money out of China, you know, outside of China in Asia. That's quite a lot for, you know, a very small island state. Um, I think there is definite availability of capital that is made more transparent and, and accessible. It doesn't mean that companies will still succeed mm. because there is capital around, you know. I think the, the, the requirements and the tenacity required to build a business has always been the same. It's easier to get in, you know, but it, it is as hard to get out. Yeah, <laughs> even harder maybe. Because yeah, of the cost of hiring, like mm -hmm. you know, you got you're competing with Google and Facebook now for the best talent, right? So yeah, but but there's certainly a sh been a shift of um, how success is defined. You know, like we were, I was, I was in a board meeting, and other board members were sharing that um, now investment bankers and PE funds, right? They are discouraging their companies from making profit because once you're able to show the extent of profit you can make. That's it. You mm. cannot fetch the high valuation based solely on the story of growth. Right. You know, that's that's in interesting because, yeah. you know, I still come from uh, the generation that believes in a sustainable, profitable business. That's why we're here, right? To make money and make a profit at the end of the day on, and, and add some value, right? And, and it's more than that as well, right? It's to create some value, but also it's to respect the market feedback mm. loop, right? Like, the you know, the, the market tells you if this is rightly priced, the market tells you if this is value, this one you can get rid of, things like that. But, you know, in, in the new world order, I mean, everyone is listing on, on billion-dollar losses in, in the stock market. And... And to hear that investors are actually preventing them from, mm. uh, discouraging them from hitting that first dollar mark because then you will have a fixed EBITDA margin mm -hmm. or you will have that fixed profit margin and you can't paint that growth story and that high valuation anymore. I think that really needs some, needs needs a relook, you know, mm. as to how VCs are behaving. Where do you think we are in the early stage market? Because, I mean, Talk, I mean, found ventures is mm. that's your, um, you know, obviously early one of stage the, fund, yeah. yeah, an early stage fund, and there seems to be um, a real growth in early stage investment here in Asia because, as you say, you rightly say it's easier to get into the game now. Mm. So um, whether it's people who are the corporate dropouts, you mm. know, with twenty years experience, I know mm. what's broken than banking or fintech. There's a lot more people coming into that market mm. now. It's easier to get in because anybody can, you know, especially the growth of co-working as well. It's allowed people to start a business effectively where previously you would spend six months looking for a space mm. and all that sort of stuff. So this early stage market is growing across Southeast Asia. What does that, I mean, what's happening in that at the moment? You're seeing the kind of startups coming in. What kind of trends are happening in that market? 
I would say the quantity is definitely has increased. The quality has increased, but to a lesser extent than, than the quantity. Um, I think the most, um, certainly the most respected funds in Southeast Asia, they still stick to their discipline of um, investing um, slowly, investing mm. carefully, um, you know, respons- they're responsible for their LP's money. Um, so I, I would say that um, the, the, real, the, the really good funds, they are still very, very disciplined in how they park money and who they park money with. They certainly, you know, we see funds look, we, you know, in last few years, right, you, we may have looked at maybe a thousand over deals a, a mm. year. Now it can go up to 3,000, 4,000 deals a year. So the quantity has definitely ballooned. Mm. Um, and talent is coming from more interesting places, right? Like Vietnam and Indonesia, all these countries that, you know, three, four years ago might not have been that attractive for VC funds to enter, right? Because mm. of political, geopolitical reasons. Um, but now it's it's more a parity kind of thing. You know, talent can come from anywhere. Yeah. And mm. once Vietnam comes online, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting development. Yeah, and once very... those guys get up the learning curve, they work hard over there, right? I mean, anywhere across Southeast Asia as well, you see, you know, yeah. once they get access to the tools and the know-how and the capital, it's an even playing field. How do you filter out all those deals? I mean, you know, if you've got three or 4,000 pitch decks coming your way and deals coming across your door, I mean, funds usually would operate through, you know, immediacy, whoever is in the network or referral. Mm-hmm. But when you're sort of dealing in such a big market, what, what are you looking for now beyond the referrals? Are there any sort of like, like um, indicators that you look for in startups or their pitch decks or their language or their sector? which helps you sort of qualify that a bit better? That hasn't changed. I think, you know, like I say, we, with more noise, I think we, we have to even be more careful about what, which is the signal and which mm. is the noise. And um, even more, even more we go back to the, the foundations of, of really just good um, assessment of founder character um, team, you know. Um, it, when, you're, when you're in an early stage, investing field you you can't really judge based on many 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 other things mm. um there so, aren't many other things there's yeah, no revenues that, in many time, cases yeah. yeah so um of course traction is still um you know you can still prove traction at mm. that early stage but um it's still very much back back to the people and back to the founders a new trend i would say what you would call the corporate dropouts <laughs> i would call them i would I just had a Business Times interview last month and I was like, the midlife crisis is the best invention ever because it really makes 40-year-olds pause and think about how they want to spend the second half of their lives. And the wisest ones I know will tend to um, be brave enough to say that, okay, whatever, the corporate track might not have been for me. Mm. I'm going to leave a bigger impact now through a different route, right? And these are really interesting. This is a really interesting talent pool, if you ask me. The, the research has shown that the best entrepreneurs in the world are around 42 years old. Yeah, I've heard 45. Yeah, somewhere there, right? <laughs> Harvard, but not, yeah. not 25. Yeah, right. Not 25. Not your typical sort of yeah. in a pair of sandals out of Stanford, right? So, so those, those we, will, we will definitely... Um, 
it will it will make it it make it harder to chuck away their decks. Yeah, if they have that background. Very interesting. You're talking about a founder character, and you you I think must be a good judge of character in the sense that you you've mentioned talent, and I think this is a talent game in the sense mm. that you have seen many patterns. So if 4,000 pitch decks come your way, maybe you have X number, 100 meetings or however many it is, coffees with founders. You get to read founders based on, you know, that looks a bit like somebody I invested in before, similar kind of characters and so on. You mentioned, for example, like those midlife crisis people. So obviously they're one group of founders which you're aware of and you see what works and maybe what doesn't work. What else do you look for in that, what I call the emotional due diligence? It's like, you know, it's not on the pitch deck. It's not in the spreadsheet. It's the things people say. It's how they address other people. It's how they see problems and so yeah. on. So uh, imagine someone like your, your antenna for this is probably really well tuned because you've seen so many. Mm, three years. Yeah. What do you look for? Mm, I would say that they they normally have um, a quality and clarity of thought around the business that they want to set up, around the problem that they want to tackle. Um, that is that would distinguish them from a wannabe. You know, that would distinguish them from someone who wants to be part of the startup bandwagon, but not necessarily have that. Um, that X factor insight. I'm look, we are looking for that clarity of insight, and you you know it when you when you hear it. Hmm. And then, on top of that, you still want someone who has that dominant way of thinking around a problem or an industry, but yet still, you know, he or she is not a, it's not an asshole. You know, like he or she is still coachable and. You know, it's, you you you, you want to work with this person for the next seven years. That's the the long the that's the duration of a VC and portfolio company mm. um duration of a relationship, right? It's not if you if you and it's physiological as well, right? Like if you find yourselves dreading a meeting with this potential founder that you are going to invest in, that's that's a sign. That's a sign on its own. Seven know? years of that is going to be tough, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And if the beginning, you know, if in the beginning you already feel like that, it's, yeah. not, it's not a good thing. Yeah, I think it was, um, I was listening to Jason Calacanis talk about <laughs> seven years. And I think he says it's like a, it's, it's like a marriage and you've got to look for people who are good at communicating, right? Because many of the, the problems that occur in a startup is when they don't communicate. So they don't communicate to the investors, they don't communicate to their people and so on. So all those sort of clarity of thought and that sort of dominant mm. mindset, if you like, but not being arrogant, mm. like having a sort of a leadership position, but being able to accept feedback and listen to people mm. as well. Everybody's got their own sort of thesis about what makes great startup founders. I was even with Magnus just mm. over here in in Antler. Antler yeah. He talks about the I can't do his Norwegian accent, but the spike. He says that they have that spike. Yeah, that yeah. sort of you said X factor, right? Yeah. He says the spike. How, how do you the define X it? insight? I call it. <laughs> what is that? What is it you look for? And do you think? I mean, for me personally, I think successful startup founders are a bit odd. A bit different, you know. If you if you took a bell curve of personality, they're sort of in that twenty percent, but not too extreme that they can't function. They they maybe face a lot of rejection, like in their thoughts. You know, like if they had an obvious thought, everybody else would be doing it. But they're the ones going out there saying, "I think it's like this," and nobody understands what I'm trying mm. to do. 
They're the black swan. Th- those are the best ones because then you're you're not too late into the game and it's not yet an accepted mass market mm. thing, you know. And so when you enter, you will you tend to gain a, a larger upside, a larger float on top of of that. Yeah. So I have an example. Please, if you want. Um, yeah. One of the companies we invested in is Horangi. It means tiger in Korean, I think. But um, Paul, um, the founder of Horangi, used to be the head of Palantir in Southeast Asia. And his his insights into the world of cybersecurity and intelligence and all that during the Palantir years led him to believe that um, there is a whole long tail of out of not not Fortune 500 companies, right? Companies outside of Fortune 500 that need cybersecurity in the next decades, wow. right? And he has found a way to democratize cybersecurity protection and prevention and um, solving, right? Um, to that long tail of 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 companies, and we love that that you you can clearly see that that's going to be needed mm. in the world. And it's not being served yet by the big incumbents. And this is the right guy to kickstart that movement. And they're doing so well now, you know. So that that's really an example. It's a great example, mm. yeah. It's a great example that you imagine when he was talking to corporates or large enterprises, they were like, okay, there's the door. You know, we don't yeah. get it until somebody saw that. And this is the challenge, isn't it? In, in the startup ecosystem, they talk about the black swans, you know, like it's the one in 10, you know, I think Paul Graham says that all the returns are found in a very few amount of startups. Mm-hmm. And most startups, the investments will fail, mm-hmm. at least the returns, right? So how do you identify those? Because the challenge is the best ideas are disguised as bad ideas, right? When you meet them. until so, you know, Because otherwise, if it was a good idea, everybody will be in. It would all be priced in, right? There'd be no upside there. But that's also where the hard work of being a good fund comes. You know, you it, it's you can't you can't be lazy as a VC. You know, I think the way you you position yourself in the market or the position you take in the market in mm. that funnel of the market, if you are able to be at a position where you can identify these great ideas before people, mm. before the others. That's when you stand to gain as a as as a as a fund, right? So so that's that's one advantage of why we set up a um a fund on top of um a co working community because we we can see that talent people who are coming from outside of Singapore they they would normally land in a hub or found now found eight right Be- that's 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 their default you know mm. so we get to capture that talent pool like almost as gatekeepers. Um, that's that's when you know the alumni of our community say, "Hey, you guys, let's set up a fund." They would anchor it. So the fund ventures is anchored by our alumni, people who have made it and have succeeded. Hmm. So the founders turn funders, right? To your right, first right. point, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's what's needed, right? Yeah. So that we we thought that was an interesting stack to to build. Um, so so what. Where do they sort of fit together so people understand which is serving which here, which is sort of the main day job, so to speak, and which is 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 the co-working space there to funnel success stories into the fund, or is the fund really to to serve the co-working space? It becomes synergistic. Right. Yeah, it becomes synergistic. Um, uh, I think almost half of our portfolio companies choose to work out of our spaces because yeah. you get that post-investment support. 
um, and then and then through the co-working campuses as well, um, we we see the we we see that flow of uh, of talent, right? Mm. So now we found it. We each had an investment fund coming in into the merger, right? Of course, the funds are not part of the merger because they have different investors and yeah. different LPs, but they are all we are all sort of like sister companies now, and the funds, um, yeah. Yeah, the other fund is uh, only investing companies in our mm. community. <laughs> so no, it's great. I, I love what you're doing. And yeah. it's absolutely needed. It really, I mean, a lot of people talk about community building. And then maybe they have the yoga classes and the free beer. But at the end of the day, it's real support. Oh, it's real, real community building is the toughest part of running a business. Right. It is so unsexy and so much hard work. It looks effortless on the outside, but... That's because there's so much effort behind the scenes, and yeah. I, I, I think money can buy through that for a short period of time, but we, you know, we 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 certainly believe that um, a true a true community takes time to build. Yeah, well, let me um, now that we're sitting here, ask you for some advice as somebody who sat. And I seen don't know if many, I can give advice. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious to know because you 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 know you have build a great community here you have been active in the early stage funds as well mm. and the startup ecosystem since year dot here in singapore you know our thesis is that early stage investors invest in people first rather than ideas and products you know like you said it's that founder character that they invest in and we feel that here in in asia and particularly in southeast asia there are plenty of platforms and lists and databases but as an early stage investor, I'm looking, so, you know, I want to hear your story and how you think about a particular problem and that sort of clarity of thought. So, you know, our sort of bet, if you like, with Pitch Deck is that if we get uh, founders onto the show and record their videos, it's as good as being able to see and have a coffee without traveling all over Asia mm -hmm. of all these different startups across Asia. Mm -hmm. The challenge now is now connecting that with funds because this is an early stage filter. Effectively, it's a it's a qual qualitative filter if you if you like. You, you know? mean people founders who appear on, on the show? Yeah, so they, the, they, yeah. they go onto the show. They talk about their story, their why, and and investors can go in there and have a look and say, okay, I really like what that person's saying. You you said about that sort of physiological mm -hmm. match as well. So we create a platform for emotional due diligence. All the other numbers and stuff are fine. But at this stage, let's see if I like this person. And if I like this person, let's meet this person for a coffee. And here's how I can access 5,000 startups in Asia. How do I, for example, or how do we as a team get that to the funds and, and get them on board with that? Because right now they're looking at numbers and, and lists as they are out there and pitch decks and spreadsheets how, how do we sort of connect with the ones that really get it and say yeah i get this i need to see this person see their talk and see their background story and so on depends what stage you're 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 talking about right if if they make it to your show they would already be in they would already have been quite successful wouldn't they these go from pre-seed up to a pre-seed up to a yeah yeah and so i think coming from an investor's perspective um if your show is able to surface talent from pockets of the region that are, we are blindsided to, mm. that would be valuable, right? Because the, the, the fact of the matter is, if, if you're a good founder, we would already know you. The word, the word gets around. 
Yeah, even at an early stage. Mm. And if you have a good investor or VC fund behind you, they make sure that people know about you. So then where's the value of a podcast series like, like yours, right? Yeah, I would say pockets of talent and re- in regions that we might not have the um that 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 network of gossips <laughs> into mm. yet, right? Um that would be that would so be So what is that? So I mean obviously you've got a very good footprint and a good network, a funnel. What what would be the blind side for funds like you, you know, in in sense that there'd be certain areas of talent that may be overlooked? Because you know, five million startups in Asia, you can't have access to all of them, right? So and there's the immediacy bias as well. So how how do we where, what would you suggest those blind sides are? Because I think if we like like your Harangi friend is like if we can democratize this, you know, we could do for the startup mm-hmm. ecosystem what MTV did yeah. for music. Yeah. What do you think those blind sides are? Yeah, where, where 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 we don't normally spend time enough time in, right? In markets where we don't spend enough time in. So yeah, like Vietnam or mm. even the fringes of China, Hong Kong. Um you know, we, we spend quite some time in Malaysia and Indonesia, but then again Indonesia is quite a big market too, right? So I think it depends from fund to funds, uh fund to fund. Um, maybe also there's an argument around female founders, right? Yeah, because just because they're, they're really good, but they are not very good at marketing themselves. They're not very good. So we we always have this um, rule, right? That if a male founder pitches to us, we have to discount it by 20%. Right. If a female founder pitches to us, we have to give her a 20% premium. Yeah. You know, it's just how, it's just the stage of human civilization that we're at at this point. So if, if they're really great, you know, so you can split it in in different ways, right? Whether it's demographic, whether it's geography, whether it's some, whether it's some startup verticals that people don't really look into. You know, mm. yeah. I like the female founder premium. I was looking. I mean, look at the numbers in Angel List. I think in the top fifty angels by deal volume in Singapore, there's one female. In the partners in or Singapore. in the portfolio company? Singapore. So listed by deals done on Angel List, there's only one, and she's actually not in Singapore. She's based in Hong Kong. So, I mean, it's incredible. So I think there's a lot of work to have globally. Well, yeah, only two percent. Yeah, of VC money goes to female founders. Yeah, although there's data to say that um, any company that has at least one female founder, a female co-founder, lasts longer and is more profitable. Absolutely. So yeah. there's all these contradictory um, facts. So use that as an as an arbitrage, you know. I'm on board. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think the thing is, is, you know, female founders tend to sort of approach the problem a little bit more realistic than a male founder. So there's a lot of that male founder, I'm going to go and challenge and I'm going to go and blow this thing up. Females may take things a bit more sort of considerately. And I think that's probably <laughs> speaking the language of an investor. Yeah. If we did, for example, if we did a female founder demo day, mm. do you think that would work? It better be good. You know, well, like it, it, it still it, has to be good. Yeah, it yeah. will be good because if they're female founders and <laughs> they kick ass. Yeah, so we may have to w- work harder to to find them. You know, yeah. to find they may be in Yangon, they may be in Vietnam. You know, like there are some countries that are naturally pumping up more female founders. Interestingly, actually, China, for example. Yeah, yeah. you know, more matriarch than patriarch, right? And yeah, if you, if 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 the, the that's the thing, right? We cannot cut the slack on quality mm. as well, right? Yeah. Like our, the Farm Ventures is an entire female uh, investment committee, but we never market it that way because we still invest in the best founders, whether you're female or male. And we, we do struggle looking for 
looking for we we try to use our unconscious bias right mm. to 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 be pro female, mm. but it's it's still it's still less in supply. Well, I mean, what what is that? Is it just that women are less likely to step up and market themselves because they're more worried about criticism? Is that? I mean, there's a lot of factors, oh, social yeah, factors. So many. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm very careful about talking about this. That I have to sort of do it through you. What's I'm, the one hypothesis we have is that female founders rarely start businesses just to get rich. So they don't have that mercenary way of talking and that focus in, in yeah. you know, just saying, talk about valuation and quadrupling that or whatever in two years. A lot of female founders we see start something out of passion, right? Out of, out of something they truly, truly believe in. And when you mix passion with, I mean, it's, it's, it's the necessary fuel to, to start a company, but it is a slightly different language system mm. than what VCs that are predominantly and previously male, white male dominated would recognize. Mm-hmm. So it's already a different, different voice, you know. So how do we as, as the investor group overcome some of these unconscious bias and pattern recognition? Yeah. To uh- be... I don't even, you know, it's a big topic. It's a big topic that has to be systematically um, chipped on, yeah, you know, globally. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully this conversation adds to that. I think it's about storytelling hopefully. because where all that comes from is role models. And mm. unfortunately, you have very few compared to me as a kid growing up, like, you know, in business, like mm. male role models I can take your pick. There's thousands and thousands. The media is full of them. And that is really a media bias, right? You know, you can pick all the, the, the business people. They're all men, right? Mm. Yet when you're a woman, you're looking around, it's a lot harder, isn't it? Mm. And that has an impact on people because you're inspired to do something because of a role model at mm-hmm. some point, a story yeah, that you've heard. Yeah, it's a significant adult, yeah. yeah. So that is what we need to give a platform mm-hmm. to. So, you know, having this conversation with you today, hopefully can be another story that we can put out there as a role model. And I think you're a great role model for not just female founders, but for male founders as well. So let's get that out there. Yeah. And hopefully that does its bit, right? You know, Hopefully our generation of founders will, will do something different for the next generation. That would, be, that would be a great hope to have. Yeah. Well, let's end on that very pos- mm-hmm. positive note. Grace Sai, everybody. Co-founder and co-CEO of Foundate. Grace, it's been a real privilege speaking to you today and hearing a bit about your story. Thank you for inviting us here to Foundate on your new recently merged co-working space. And, you know, all more power to you. You've been here since the start of the ecosystem. Thanks, yeah. You know, hopefully more success stories will come through this platform. So thank you very much today. Thanks. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.